Hello and welcome to Alchemy Radio, the home of the open mind. Thank you for tuning in and hopefully you enjoy the show and the variety of interesting guests that we bring to you as frequently as we possibly can. As you know, we're free, completely non-profit and available on demand from our website, alchemyradio.net and iTunes. And our listenership is increasing all the time along with the associated costs. So I'll have to do the old sales pitch here. We're relying on donations to keep things free and advertising free and are very grateful for any help you can offer. There's no fixed cost on donations. You'll find a donate or subscribe button on our website. And even the most tiny offering is hugely appreciated. You can check us out on Facebook and Twitter. So get following and interacting with us. We love to hear from you. So on to the show. This week's guest is Marcus Allen. Marcus is the British distributor and publisher of the UK edition of Nexus magazine. Nexus deals with news and information that's overlooked, unreported or ignored by the mainstream media. It covers many subjects, including hidden history, future science, alternative health issues, conspiracies and UFOs. A little bit like Alchemy Radio, one might say. And today, Marcus will be talking about the moon landing. So, Marcus, you're very welcome to Alchemy Radio. How are things? I'm very well, thank you, and I'm privileged to be here. Thank you for your invitation. Well, the privilege is all ours. I think we're going to have a fascinating discussion, which could touch on some different and diverse topics, but we'll see where it takes us. But before we delve into the nitty-gritty of anything we want to discuss, I'd like to ask you the question that I ask pretty much everyone who comes on the show, and that's, how did you get from where you were, I suppose your starting point with regard to the work that you do now, to where you are now? It started, I suppose, back in um, 1969. See, I'm old enough to have watched the moon landings live and um, out of my window when I lived in London. For 20 years, I believe this was something which, uh, which was a magnificent achievement. I really applauded the Americans for having landed on the moon, allegedly, I say now. Then I started questioning it because I was a photographer in London in the 60s, and so I'm told. And I started looking at the pictures and I started to wonder what was going on because there were certain questions I couldn't get answers to. Anyway, the the more I went on, the more I started looking at the evidence for the moon landings, the more I found it questionable. And I thought, well, maybe it's me or maybe it's that other people would agree with it as well. So I started doing public presentations on it. And uh, uh, you remember overhead projectors? That's yep. how I started back then. I mean, this was before digital projectors or anything like that. So, I mean, I've been at it a long time, bit of an old hand at it, really. And the more I did it, the more I found that there were anomalies within the evidence that we were being presented with as a conclusive proof that NASA had landed man on the moon which was a great achievement if they'd done it. And the more I questioned it, the more I found that there was doubt surrounding it. So uh, this was, what, 45 years ago. So I've been involved in this for, for about that time, but questioning it for about 25 years. And I'm now the uh, UK publisher of Nexus magazine, and the current issue carries a particularly interesting article on this whole subject. So it's almost like come full circle that uh, it was just me and, and a few overhead projector shots 25 years ago. 
and now it's a sort of worldwide discussion. There are millions of people who are looking at it, some of them for the first time, and agreeing that there are questions that uh, NASA hasn't answered yet. So we're still at it, we're still doing it, and it seems to, uh, rather than dying off, as uh, people have found that I was wrong, they're finding that it's getting increasingly active because they find that I was right. Let's look at my perspective for a minute. I mean, I grew up being told from the day I was born that man landed on the moon and John F. Kennedy launched the space program in the US and they beat the Russians in the space race and it's all glory and pomp and ceremony for the US because they did it. There's one question, before I even began to look into what may or may not have happened, there's just something that niggled away from as long as I can remember, and that's, well, if they did all of this in the 60s and 70s and went to the moon, and it was so fascinating and such a great achievement for mankind, why did they stop? I mean, that, that just, that question sat with me for a long, long time, and it still does. If the official story is what they say it was, well... Why in the hell would they stop doing it? Because surely mankind can learn so much more from going back and back and back. And where are the moon bases that we have always been told will eventually end up on the moon and that we'll have people living there full time and that we can explore the stars from our base on the moon? That, that hasn't happened. And we're, what, 45 years on, give or take. So uh, what's going on here, Marcus? It's a good question. It's a question I could ask more and more frequently nowadays because everybody's heard of this moon landings business. As you say, it was one of the great events of the 20th century. It was voted in, in the UK over here a little while back. The top TV moment of all time was um, two white figures, white ghostly figures bounced around on, on what we were told was a lunar surface. Mm. Why haven't we been back? And when you look at history, it, it doesn't make sense at all. You know, Columbus uh, gets to uh, America, 1492, 30 years later, Spain has uh, taken, uh, taken the place over. Um, Captain Cook gets to Australia in 1770, 30 years later, Britain ships its prison population out there. Mm. 1969, man lands on the moon. 45 years later, nothing. You're right, there's a real mystery here. And that is the um, part of the article that's in the current issue of Nexus magazine is asking that question, exactly. Why haven't we been back? And the answer would appear to be that we can't use the technology that was used on the Apollo program in the late 1960s because nobody can find it. The blueprints of the rockets have seemed to have gone missing. The um, radiation levels are extremely dangerous now. Why weren't they dangerous 45 years ago? And the heat shield that you, is absolutely essential to return from any space trip. Uh, the heat shield on, on the uh, space shuttle is um, well known because uh, the space shuttle goes backwards and forwards to the space station, or it used to. That's been cancelled as well. Because it got, you have to protect the astronauts in any spacecraft. And the heat shield is uh, what uh, absorbs the enormous friction as you enter the atmosphere. Mm. Coming back from the moon, you've got far higher temperatures, and nobody can find the formula that they used the first time. So there's a real problem here, and there's a real mystery as to where is all this information. If it was so easy back with the technology of the 1960s, it must be, you know, one hand tied behind your back time. Now you can go up and do it any time you like, but no, you can't. 
And that is raising some very, very serious questions. Um, NASA, as we know what that stands for, never a straight answer, <laughs> don't seem to be able to uh, come up with any reasonable solution. They're building new rockets to go, why don't they use the old Saturn V rocket, the, the one that the giant 365-foot-tall uh, black-and-white rocket that was designed by Werner von Braun, you know, the ex-Nazi who was brought over to America to keep their space program going. Mm. Why don't they use that? Um, no, they don't seem to be able to build the engines anymore. Um, there's a lot of mystery going on here. There's a real problem that NASA have, and I think they're about to get caught out on this one because, as you said, more and more people are saying, well, hey, why haven't we been back? What's the problem? And the problem is... Maybe we never went there in the first place. Maybe it was all a Cold War propaganda coup. And do you, know, do you know what, Marcus? Just as you speak there, I mean, that excuse doesn't really wash. I mean, if I, if I was in school and I was meant to have my homework in on a particular day and I turned up and said to the, the teacher, do you know what? It just went missing. I did it, but it just went missing. Well, that's not really going to wash. Yet we're expected to listen to NASA saying essentially the same thing with regard to what should have been, and they claim was, the most revolutionary technology and the most amazing leap forward in technological terms in the history of mankind, as we are led to believe it is. And it's just gone missing. The dog ate my homework. That, that cannot be the case. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a very good analogy. The dog ate my homework. That is exactly what NASA are saying. They can't find it. It's amazing how many things <laughs> NASA can't find when you ask them about it, such as the original uh, film that was allegedly taken on the lunar surface of Aldrin and Armstrong bouncing around saluting the flag. Mm. That was found in a disused McDonald's in somewhere in America, uh, just in time for the 40th anniversary. 2009 they found that there's a lot of very very questionable activities going on and maybe it's because at the time it happened nobody ever thought that 45 years later people would be asking these sort of questions and they haven't got the answers to them and you're dead right there are so many unanswered questions and I'd like to explore as many of those as we can because there are glaring anomalies that are quite clear when any kind of rational minded person no matter what their paradigm when they look at the information presented by NASA and then kind of use their heads just a little bit undeniably there are anomalies so let's look at some of those what are the most glaring ones for you Marcus at this point the most glaring ones the ones that I'm most familiar with are the photographs now, if you, if you ask anybody, well, what is the evidence for the moon landings? You know, what, what can you produce to show that man has landed on the moon? Mm. Most people would immediately refer to the photographs, which are very well known. Uh, some of the films, they're very well known too. The astronauts are very well known. Um, we can usually name uh, at least two of the astronauts, probably Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. Mm -hmm. And Buzz Aldrin, he, that was uh, his nickname given to him by his sister, who couldn't pronounce the word brother, so she called her brother Buzz, which is where Buzz Lightyear got his name from. So it sort of follows through into, uh, into children's television as well, which is probably where it should have stayed. <laughs> now, looking at the photographs, any photographer will tell you that it's very easy to take lots and lots and lots of photographs. You just press the button. Yeah. 
But one point one has to bear in mind at this stage, just, just so that we're in the picture, these were not digital cameras that were being used. These were analog cameras, the old-style film camera. You may remember some of these. They were very, very good cameras. And the camera that was used on the Apollo missions was a Hasselblad camera. Hasselblad is probably the best camera you can buy, or you could buy in the 1960s, and it's probably the best camera you can buy today. And they didn't change the design much. Now, the point about a Hasselblad camera is it has a very, very good lens, and that is the key to getting any photograph, any good photograph. It was designed originally by Victor Hasselblad in Sweden in the 1940s for use by Swedish aircraft as an aerial camera. So it was designed to be bolted onto something. It was used in the 60s as a fashion, by fashion photographers. It was used on tripods. It's not an easy camera to carry around. This is the point. Now, when it was adapted as a moon camera, there were certain uh, changes made to it. Now, if you use a camera, you would usually use a viewfinder. Now, that is a standard procedure. You've got to look at what you're taking a picture of. Yeah. The lunar Hasselblad camera, the camera taken to the moon, had no viewfinder. It was removed. Because if you're wearing a spacesuit, you can't actually use the viewfinder on a Hasselblad because it's on the top of the camera and you look down into it. Right. So they took the viewfinder away. So it has no viewfinder. It was also a manually operated camera. You had to set the aperture the f-stop, you had to set the shutter speed, and you had to focus it by hand. Now, all this will sound a bit old hat to many people who are used to just picking up a camera, switching it on, and taking a picture. That's called a point-and-shoot camera. The Hasselblad was deliberately designed to be operated by professionals. On the moon, they're wearing their spacesuits, aren't they? Mm. You can't wear half a spacesuit. You've got to wear the, the whole kit and caboodle. You've got to wear the helmet, the gloves, the boots and the suit so you're pressurized because on the moon it's a vacuum no pressure so you've got to carry your own because humans can't exist in a in a vacuum you have to be pressurized or you explode not very pleasant live on television because that's what they were so you've got this ridiculous situation of a camera that has no viewfinder strapped to your chest because they had to have their hands free to gather their rocks and various other kit that they had to operate, apparently. You're setting the aperture, the, fo the focus ring, and the shutter speed ring. They're all individual rings on a Hasselblad camera. You can go into a shop and look at one today. Wearing what are, in effect, heavy-duty gardening gloves, because that's what a spacesuit um, gauntlets will be. They're armoured to stop uh, micrometeorites um, penetrating the suit and releasing all the pressure. So you've got all these restrictions on the use of a camera, and yet some of the photographs offered by NASA as evidence for the moon landings are some of the most iconic photographs of the 20th century. A man on the moon, spaceships, uh, the lunar lander on the surface, astronauts, on the lunar surface. And you start looking at these and, and looking at them from a professional point of view, not from a historical point of view, and they are so riddled with anomalies as to be almost laughably stupid as evidence for something which happened. For instance, one of the things that photographic film is affected by is radiation. Mm. 
Um, some people may well recall in the days when airport security was first introduced, uh, you were always advised if you were carrying your film camera through customs that you had it hand-searched and you didn't put it through the X-ray machine because that would damage the film, which is quite true. X-rays do damage photographic film. So space is full of X-rays and gamma rays and other nasties that fly up from the sun, but we don't get affected by those nasties on Earth because we have the Van Allen radiation belts to protect us, which are basically belts of radiation held in place by the Earth's magnetic field about 500 miles up. But not on the moon. That is not protected by anything. It's exposed to the full gamut of radiation. But none of the films that were taken on the lunar surface, and there are 32,000 images supposedly exposed on the lunar surface, are affected by radiation. Okay, so presumably then, Marcus, they had some kind of high-technology protection on the cameras then to stop that happening, yeah? Yeah, the only high-tech protection they had was a bit of paint. Okay, okay. Silver paint. Now, that might reflect a bit of the heat, because we (laughs) haven't even touched on the heat aspect of of the moon. Radiation can be... uh, You can protect uh, people, you can protect objects from radiation very easily. There are two things which are very good at protecting against radiation. One is lead, because it's very, very solid, and the other is water. You can also use earth. Uh, three foot of earth would do it as well. Water would do it. So uh, now you may recall a film called uh, the IMAX film about the building of the International Space Station. It was released about 10 years ago. And one of the uh, write-ups about the film recounted how in the filming of that, the film was taken up uh, in the space shuttle to the space station. The astronauts did the filming at the direction of the uh, film producers and director back on Earth. They were told what shots were required. The camera was taken up in the space shuttle. The astronauts did the two minutes of filming for each magazine. Uh, There's only two minutes of film in each magazine. And then the film had to be stored between the water bottles on the... Uh, space shuttle to protect it from radiation. Hang on a minute. This is below the Van Allen radiation belts, and they're still worried about it. Mm. So if you're going up onto the moon, you're going to get serious radiation damage, but no damage appears on the film. That must have been some serious silver paint they had. We've never heard of it since, believe me. You'd think it would be (laughs) one of the great inventions of all time. A coat of paint that can protect you from radiation. So anybody operating an X-ray machine doesn't have to wear a lead apron. They can just wear a, an apron with a bit, of, a bit of silver paint on it. No, no, it hasn't, it hasn't surfaced since. Never a straight answer. There you go. It, it, it's, there's some, there are so many ludicrous situations surrounding the evidence. You know, um, if you ask somebody for evidence for the moon landings, they'll almost certainly refer you to the photographs. Maybe the films, they refer you to the books, they refer you to the astronauts. Right, let's talk about the astronauts, shall we? Neil yeah. Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, Mike Collins, Ed Mitchell, uh, Al Shepard, uh, Gene Cernan, uh, Schmidt. There are 12 of them who landed on the moon, we're told. There were another um, six who were in the lunar module as it orbited the moon while the guys were on the surface waiting for them to come back. So there were 12 who walked on the lunar surface, and they're known as the moonwalkers. Mm. 
then there are quite a few other astronauts around, but can you name any space shuttle astronaut? Even one who's on the space shuttle right now. I doubt it very much. I certainly can't. No, they're, they're not well known at all. The Apollo astronauts were built up as the, the frontier heroes. You know, you've got the Wild West, mm. uh, you've got the new frontier. The Apollo astronauts were basically given carte blanche uh, to be the new American hero. And that's why they're, they're so familiar. Neil Armstrong passed on a couple of years ago. But none of the other astronauts, to my knowledge, even the ones who have also passed on, two or three have, have had any illness that can be apparently attributed to radiation sickness or radiation damage. One of the things that would be affected would be your eyesight. You get uh, cataracts. You would also get uh, propensity to cancer. Various other things. None of these things seem to happen. So, again, we have a question mark over the astronauts. But also, you must bear in mind, the astronauts were all military men. Neil Armstrong, for instance, served as a, uh, a naval aviator. Uh, U.S. Navy uh, trained many, many very good pilots uh, during the Korean War. Neil Armstrong served during the Korean War and served on active service and was credited with many, many shoot-downs of foreign planes. He was also the X-15 pilot. The X-15 is the rocket plane that was flying during the 1960s. And though he did retire, uh, on the surface he retired from military service when he became an astronaut, mm. you ha if you've signed the Official Secrets Act, you've signed it for life. So he was under the same constraints as any military pilot. So these are all military men, and the esprit de corps, the, uh, the way in which military personnel support each other, is such that none of them will break ranks. Because some of them must know what has been going on here. Now, one of the, one of the questions that I quite get often asked, when I, I do public presentations on this quite, quite often, I get asked... Well, surely the 400,000 people who worked on the Apollo program, somebody would have blown the whistle by now. Somebody would have, would have let all this out. And yes, it's quite true that 400,000 people did work on the Apollo program, the height of its uh, activity in the mid-1960s when they were building all these pieces of kit. But you have to also bear in mind the circumstance of the Ameri American military sets up the compartmentalization of any major operation. So that if you're building the rockets at Boeing in, in Seattle, you're not going to know what the guys who are building the, uh, uh, the control center down in Houston in Texas are doing, because it's not your business to know. You're getting on with your own job. You're doing the best you can. The guys in Virginia who were writing some of the software and doing some of the uh, operations there didn't know what the guys in California were doing who were building the uh, the space the the uh, the lunar module. So, so no, nobody has the bigger picture. They have the pieces of the jigsaw, but they can't see the picture itself. That that's the key to it. Nobody had the big picture. Nobody had an overall concept of what was going on. So they all they were doing the best job they could. This is not to say that the four hundred thousand people plus their their families and friends, probably up to two million people directly or indirectly associated with the Apollo program, were aware of any and any problems going on. 
Mm. None of them would have been. There would be no reason to have any any knowledge of it because it wasn't being highlighted. It wasn't being discussed at any level. They were saying, well, how can we make the best rocket we can do? Unfortunately, they there were a few real anomalies about it. I mean, there was a, an explosion on Apollo 1. There were three astronauts. They were in their space uh, capsule, the, the command module. Uh, on the ground, it was, a, it was a static test, and they were going to test the pressurization of the uh, command module. Now, I mentioned the pressure. Obviously, the command module had to be pressurized. In space, it's at five pound per square inch. So if you're going to pressurize it to the equivalent of five pound per square inch on Earth, you have to include the atmospheric pressure as well, which is 14 pound per square inch. Mm -hmm. 14 plus five is 19. So what they're going to do is to pressurize it 19 pounds per square inch. That's a logical thing to do. But what happened? They pressurized it with pure oxygen. Now, any schoolboy will tell you that if you pressurize pure oxygen, it's going to explode. That's what oxygen does. It's a very volatile gas. We may need it to, to stay alive, but when you pressurize it in its pure form, it has disastrous consequences. It explodes, it catches fire, and that's what happened on this space capsule. It exploded, caught fire, three astronauts were incinerated because it took 10 minutes to open the, the hatch. This is not a very good design. And at that point, this is 1967, they had to redesign a lot of the equipment. But they only had uh, three years before they were supposed to be landing on the moon. So a bit of a, you know, three years to do it all, it was pretty good. You know, I think, just to interject for a second, Marcus, that's quite interesting in terms of the... Uh the public image of the U.S. space program, because we always hear about the accidents and the deaths that went on in the Russian space program, but we don't really hear much about it when it comes to the U.S. I mean, it seems to be this pristine program that just everything went swimmingly right up until seemingly Challenger in 1986. Now, I, I wasn't aware of the 1967 incineration of the three astronauts, and to me that's kind of a, a red alert straight away because it's almost like the sanitization. Now, I understand why if you're trying to put men on the moon and you have the, these accidents that occur, you don't necessarily want to make it uh, the focal point of attention, but that's a pretty big deal. And it's only two years later that they're putting these guys on the moon. Exactly. So you, you, you've got this, I mean, really very serious accident. Um, in fact, there's a little aside to that whole thing. The, 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 um, the commander of the, of the uh, three guys, Ed... Um, uh, Ed White was uh, one of the other guys on there. Um, Gus Grissom was the commander. He was he was a very senior astronaut. He was a very good astronaut. And before they actually ran this test, which was January 1969, this uh, 1967, he was at home. And before he left to return to um, uh, Cape Canaveral or Cape Kennedy, as we call it now, in Florida for the test, he went out into his garden and he was growing fruit trees because he lived in Florida, and he picked a lemon off one of his trees. He said, I'm going to take this along and put it on the space capsule because that's how I think it looks like, a lemon, which, of course, is not a very um, complimentary way of describing anything. No. So he was aware that there were problems, but he went along with it because that's what you do if you're, if you're president or you're commander-in-chief in America, if you're... Uh, the commander-in-chief and you're a military person and the commander-in-chief says, jump, 
the only question you're going to ask is, how high, sir? Mm. And the commander-in-chief was the president. At that time, it was Nixon. Time of the uh, moon, uh, moon landings. Um, were you aware also that there were three other Apollo missions scheduled to take place, Apollo 18, 19, and 20, and they were cancelled by Nixon, in, in, rather in the same way that Obama, just to jump forward into a current situation, rather in the same situation as Obama cancelled the return program to the moon, that was called the Constellation program, by saying, we've been there to the moon. We've been there. Let's go to Mars instead. That's really interesting because the billions that have been spent on Constellation, leading presumably up to a point, all of a sudden, with one speech, are just whitewashed. And we all know the US is not, in economic terms, in, in great nick at the moment. So let's abandon everything that we've spent these billions and billions on. And let's go to Mars instead. I mean, it, it, to me, it just seems ridiculous. It is. It is totally ludicrous. Because one of the major problems that they have is protecting any human being from the effects of radiation damage. Going to Mars, you've got a nine-month trip to get there and a nine-month trip to get back. You're going to expose somebody to uh, radiation for nine months. They're going to be dead before a month out of, from Earth. Mm. It's a ludicrous situation. It would be far better to build an established lunar base where people could go, could acclimatize. They could be protected from the radiation on the moon by just burying them six foot under. I mean, not dead, you understand, but just building a lunar base that is covered by soil on the lunar surface, which would protect them. It's very, it's very straightforward. Mm. But no, we've been to the moon, uh, so we don't need to go again, obviously. We'll go to Mars instead. This is nonsense, absolute nonsense, because they haven't even got a rocket that'll do it. Uh, I mentioned the Saturn V rocket, which was a very powerful, quite an efficient rocket, apparently, until you start looking into the history of it, and you realize that it, that it did have major problems. Um, it's, it's called the Pogo effect, where when you, when you start the, major, the main engine, there were five main engines on the Saturn V rocket called the F-1, made by Rocketdyne in California. And they each generated 1.5 million pounds of thrust, which you could imagine is quite powerful. And in order to generate that amount of thrust, it has to have the fuel pumped through, uh, the liquid oxygen and the liquid hydrogen have to be pumped through to ignite on contact in the rocket motor itself. In order to pump through enough fuel, you've got to have uh, an engine that is almost as powerful as the rocket itself. You would use... Uh, Something that would almost drive a, a super tanker. The sort of that's the power that is needed to pump that amount of fuel through. So these are technically quite advanced and quite complex pieces of kit, which are likely to go wrong. Now, if you start pumping that amount of fuel through and it starts to explode, which is what it's supposed to do, it wouldn't necessarily do it uh, in a in an even and straightforward way it will do it in almost like explosions that is what causes the the pogo effect and that can actually shake a rocket apart 
that can actually damage a rocket so badly that it can't even be controlled. So these all have to be overcome. One of the problems they've got now is actually getting a rocket that is powerful enough to get back to the moon. Because if you can't launch something to the moon, you've got to get about 50 tons into um, lunar orbit. You need a rocket that has a certain amount of power to do it. And the only rocket that we know of that had that power was the Saturn V rocket. But they're starting from scratch and building a new rocket, which makes no sense at all. Why don't they get the, the plans of the old rocket and build them again? It's almost as if they never did it in the first place. And that is where the questions arise. Just to go back to whistleblowers for a second, okay? Because we had the space race and we had Russia versus the US and that's the way things were set up and it's all framed by Cold War politics. So why did nobody from Russia blow the whistle on what was going on? Because presumably they're on the other side and they're thinking, right, the the Russian scientists presumably would have had their suspicions about what was going on because they would have known a thing or two about the science. So why did nobody from Russia come out and say, hang on a minute, this is crazy because of A, B, C, and D, as we're able to talk about here today. Why has that not gone on at all? Good, good point, good point. It's, it's something that is not re- realized by many people, that the people who built the Russian rockets were Germans. The Germans who were building the V-2 rockets that fell on London towards the end of the Second War. Yeah. They were being launched out of Pienemunde in northern Germany, And when the war ended, the Russians and the Americans were both desperate to get their hands on the people who could design something like this, because these were pretty sophisticated pieces of kit. I mentioned Werner von Braun. He was the one who the Americans got hold of, but the Russians got hold of quite a few other scientists from Pinimunda who helped them start the whole Soviet space program. Mm. And they did it very well, because uh, the Soviets were able to launch the first man into space. We've all heard of Yuri Gagarin, haven't we? We'll come back to him in a minute. Mm. The first woman into space, they've got the first uh, satellite to uh, launch to the moon in 1959. They got the first to Mars. They got the first to Venus. In other words, the Russians were well ahead of the Americans. The Americans uh, were trying to do something similar but they had um, inter-service rivalry. The Air Force, the U.S. Air Force and the U.S. Navy and the U.S. Army were all competing with each other to be the guys who could set the whole thing up. So one of the problems that uh, America had was that it was their rockets were perceived to be military, which they were. They, would, they were to deliver these famous nuclear bombs that were going to obliterate the planet. There's another fairy story that people tend to believe, but as soon as you look at it, you find it's not true. Nuclear bombs won't obliterate anything because they won't explode at the end of a rocket. They can't. But that's another story. What you've got is German scientists on both sides doing all the hard, hard work and the heavy lifting and designing it. So why didn't the Russians blow the whistle? Because... They knew that if they started criticizing the Americans, this would be towards the late 60s, the Americans could very simply come forward and say, well, we happen to know that Yuri Gagarin, not only was he not the first Soviet cosmonaut into space, he wasn't even the second or the third, he was the tenth, the others died, but 
We know that he parachuted out of his craft, so technically he didn't set that record as being the first man to orbit the Earth. And anyway, would you like 25 million tons of wheat, to, because we know you've had a bit of a drought over there, and your wheat harvest has failed, and we can supply you some wheat. So, would you like some wheat? And uh, there's another point about why didn't the Russians blow the whistle. It was just not in their interest to do so, even if they had been aware of, the, of all the things that we've been discussing here. They wouldn't necessarily have even been aware of it, because how would they have found out? Their uh, system of government in the Soviet Union was very, very different from the democracies, alleged democracies of the West. Who would have blown the whistle? Who would have had access to the Politburo? Brezhnev was the uh, president of Russia at the time, the Soviet Union. Who would have had access to him to be able to convince him that what he'd been observing with these Americans on the moon uh, was a pack of lies? Nobody. Because the Russian space program at that time was going through its own uh, problems. The head of the Russian space program, Sergei Korolev, had, uh, who was the driving force behind it, had died rather unexpectedly as a result of, a, of an operation in 1966. Nobody had actually succeeded him. There were a lot of people vying for his position as head of the uh, uh, Soviet Union space program but nobody had got there so it was in nobody's interest to expose America because they would also be certain of knowing that America would expose Russia there's also a third factor which we're very much aware of today the uh, imports of Russian natural gas now that uh, Russia has vast uh, reserves of natural gas in Siberia Mm. It's a long way away from where it's needed in Europe. But Russia, in order to survive as a, as a nation, has to trade with European countries, and one of its major trades is natural gas. When was the first contract drawn up for the supply of natural gas from the Soviet Union, as it was then, into Europe, specifically into Italy, Austria, and Germany? And the answer is the late 1960s, exactly at the time that the whole Apollo thing was going on. Now, Russia had the gas, but they didn't have the industry. Don't forget, they had just fought World War II and it had been, hadn't been very pleasant for them. Mm. They weren't able to build the pipes to transport the gas in. The gas will come out of the ground. You then have to pump it along huge pipes, 1.4 meters in diameter, some of the big ones. They didn't have the means to make those pipes, the thousands of kilometers of them that were required. But there was a country that did have the means, the industry to, to make them, and that was Germany. This is 1965. Germany and Russia were not exactly friends at the end of World War II. Russia had basically destroyed Germany as far as it could. But it hadn't destroyed it to the point where it couldn't make large industrial uh, facilities like pipelines. Why couldn't Russia build them? They, that, that, the technology they had available at the time and the, and, the star, and the people that they had to do it just were not up to the point, not up to it. They couldn't do it. 
Germans have a completely different attitude to engineering uh, efficiency. Mm. And so the, the contract was signed. It's called Gas for Pipes, that Russia would supply the gas, Germany would supply the pipes. Now, were they really going to jeopardize that? Of course not. Because don't forget that even now, Russia, the, uh, the, the gross national product of Russia today is less than that of Italy. It is not a particularly successful country in terms of exports. If you look at what Russia has available to offer, it has gas, it has some oil, and it has a few rockets, because the rockets currently being used to uh, resupply the International Space Station are all Russian at the moment, which is ironic. Yeah, you think it about is it. ironic. <laughs> you know, the, the, Amer the Americans also buy from Russia the engines to power their own rockets, the, the Atlas rocket is powered by a Russian engine, it's called the RD-180, because it's reliable, it works, it's powerful enough, and America doesn't seem to be able to make rocket engines. So you've, you've got these anomalies here. There was also, at the end of, uh, or during the 1960s, this is how a lot of this is known about, there were two Russian, sorry, no, there were two Italian brothers uh, listening in to the Russian space program. They were listening in to the satellites as they went overhead. They they were operating out of Turin, and they were listening in. They were two brothers and a sister. The sister learned Russian so she could understand what was being said. That's how we know that Yuri Gagarin wasn't the first, um, because a week before he orbited, another far more likely candidate for the first Russian into, into space, uh, Vladimir Ilushin, the son of the aircraft designer, who was also a test pilot, um, was, it was launched a week before Gagarin, but unfortunately the retro rockets to slow him down didn't work well enough and he landed in China, which is a bit unfortunate because China and Russia didn't like each other very much in those days, mm. but he was still alive and he, he died a few years ago as it happened. And so Gagarin wasn't the first and the Americans knew this because the, the two Italian brothers had recorded the conversations. They knew that others had... Um, died in space they knew that one or two of them had even gone into orbit around the sun and so is, the, is this a matter of public record marcus um oh, yeah, yeah yeah public record yeah no yeah i mean you can you can check it out just uh google um lost cosmonauts it's all there okay uh, so essentially we have we have then the evidence provided by the italians that things weren't what they seemed in russia we also have very clear economic reasons for them not wanting to blow any kind of whistle there. So the, that's all tantamount to a very good overall reason to keep quiet. Exactly, yeah. Uh, they were determined to keep quiet because, I mean, this space race was, it was never really a race at all. Um, it was built up to be that by uh, the American propaganda. You know, our frontier heroes will land on the moon and we will show the world what wonderful people we are and please buy our cars and fridges. Mm. It, it, was all, it, it was all propaganda. Um, it was all to do with this, this Cold War business um, where you're launching rockets with nuclear bombs on the top and we're going to obliterate the planet if you don't shut up and do what we tell you to do. It was all nonsense. 
absolute nonsense. It was complete fiction. There was never going to be a Cold War because both sides, anybody who has a nuclear bomb knows that you can't just set them off any old place. They're not giant sticks of dynamite. You can't just put it on the top of a rocket and fire it off and expect it to obliterate a country. It won't happen. Why not? Why can't you do that? Because we've all been told that you can and we've all seen the kind of uh, the, the graphics all over the place for years with the rockets pointed in the direction of Russia and in the direction of the US. So presumably if there's nuclear warheads on these and you fire them into Texas or St. Petersburg or wherever, well, boom, when they go off, there will be utter carnage. Same as a bomb. That's what we've been led to believe, isn't it? Mm. So what, what's, what's the story there? It's complete fiction. Okay, the story is this. There have only ever been two nuclear weapons set off in anger. Everything else has been a test. The two set off in anger were in Japan, 1945, over Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The plane that dropped the bomb on Hiroshima was a plane called the Enola Gay, Mm. was piloted by Paul Tebbets. He had been taken out, he and his crew of the B-29 bomber that was going to drop the bomb had been taken out of normal service and had spent a year training to drop a nuclear bomb. Now, a nuclear bomb at that time would weigh about five tons. So they were using a block of concrete. And what they would do is they'd fly this block of concrete up to 30,000 feet and they had to drop it to within a very specific target area of about 100 yards diameter. It was over a couple of bridges in Hiroshima. 100 yards in diameter from 30,000 feet. It's quite a feat. It's quite an ability to do that. But they managed it. They, they were able to work out how to do it. First question, why? Why do you need this devastating weapon, which will destroy a city, why do you need to drop it within a target area of 100 meters? Yeah. Doesn't make sense. When they dropped it and it exploded, about 1,800 feet above the surface, the first message that Paul Tebbets um, transmitted was, we got it to within one second. Why was that important? Why was the timing so important? You then go forward um, to the second bomb. The second bomb was dropped on Nagasaki. The prime target for that bomb was the city of Kobe, which is an industrial center then as it is now. But Kobe had cloud cover on the 9th of August. That was the day they were going to drop it in about um, four days' time. It's actually tomorrow is the anniversary of the uh, dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima, 6th of August. So they, they fly to Kobe, can't see anything because they've got cloud cover, so they go on to the secondary target, which is Nagasaki. Nagasaki is not a particularly important target, but they can see it. It's not very long flying time between Kobe and uh, Nagasaki, but they have to, to circle the city for three hours before they drop the bomb. Why? Because, in very simple terms, a nuclear bomb will only detonate at certain physical locations on the planet's surface at certain predetermined times dependent on the angle of the sun above the surface. 
Now, that sounds a bit complex. It does, and I have no idea really what you're talking about, so I'll I'll need you to explain that. Okay. If if you're going to detonate a nuclear bomb, yes, you can do it wherever you like, but it will not detonate until certain predetermined conditions are met, one of which is that the, the physical location at which you want to detonate that bomb has to be at a certain time. Now, time is, is dependent on the, sun, on the angle of the sun above the horizon. You know, at midday, the sun is higher than it is at dawn. Mm. Dependent on the sun angle above the horizon. You can't detonate a nuclear bomb at night. It can only be done during the day. Now, all right, this sounds a bit complex. It is a bit complex. But you may recall back in the 1960s, the French were conducting nuclear tests in the Pacific, on one of their Pacific islands. Mm. And there was a New Zealand airline pilot by the name of Bruce Cathay. And he published dates and times of the French nuclear tests. He got visited by the uh, police, quite obviously. How do you find it? He publicized, publicized them several weeks in advance of the test actually being conducted. He got visited by the police who said, how do you know? Are you a spy? Where do you get that information from? They didn't say he was wrong. They just asked him where he got the information wrong. He said, I calculated it. It's very easy. Look, this is how you do it. You take the physical location on the planet's surface, in this case an atoll in the Pacific, French Pacific Islands, and at certain days and certain times are the only relevant times that the bomb will actually explode. And those are the dates. He said, you hang about for a bit and watch out and see when the bombs actually do go off and see if I'm right. He was right. He did the same thing when the French were doing tests in the 1990s in the Pacific. But why, so it is, why, why is it, Marcus, that they will only go off at a particular time? I mean, yes, if, yeah, if, well, if a normal bomb is dropped, you can drop it day or night and it'll still explode. Why is it different for a nuclear one? Because of the, re- of the, the way a nuclear reaction occur, um, occurs. It is, there's a, uh, I don't know the physics of it, but you've got this chain reaction that builds up whereby... <laughs> The, the bomb appears to feed on itself, on, on its own energy. Mm. Feeds on its own energy, and, and that is why it's so fearsome. Because it, it, uh, it generates this vast amount of, um, of energy from a relatively small amount of, of material. I mean, most nuclear bombs don't have a great deal of, of nuclear material in them. Mm. Maybe a couple of kilos worth of, uh, of uranium, if that. It has to be a particularly pure version. And because it's then imploded on itself, that's the whole point of a, of a nuclear bomb, to generate this, this chain reaction, which just feeds on itself and, and generates this vast amount of, of heat and light and power. And it's the controlled version of one of those that, that uh, drives nuclear power stations. So like any kind of interaction that we have with our environment, the conditions have to exist to allow something to take place, and it's no different with a nuclear reaction. It's just that it differs dramatically from, say, a regular bomb that you would drop, um, such as the bombs dropped continuously through World War II. 
That's correct. Okay. Uh, that's that's a very good summary of it. That bombs that are made of, of dynamite, TNT, or uh, any other explosive material, they will go off wherever you want them to go off because there isn't a great deal uh, of problem about them. It's, it's only nuclear bombs. So this idea that, you know, if what I'm saying is true, and I have no reason to doubt that the evidence produced by Bruce Cathay over many, many years, over almost 50 years, is wrong. I don't believe it is wrong. And th this is why nuclear power is, is such a, a prized um, objective for many nations. If he's not wrong, then the whole Cold War was a fiction because it was never, ever going to happen, because both sides would know when it was likely to occur, when the timing was right for a bomb to go off. Yeah. You know, what, what, time would it, uh, what time would a bomb go off over Dublin? Well, it's very easy to work it out if you know how to do so. Okay. So you've got all these anomalies, and it, people have built up the fear and the uh, ridiculous idea that this whole thing is, is, is worth defending about. And everybody got frightened by it because everybody believed it because nobody had any alternative um, information to go on. Now they have, and we can just get out from underneath it. Okay, so we, we've given quite a few reasons then why Russia would keep quiet to bring this back then to the, to the moon landings. That, that seems to make a lot more sense now in my head than it did when you initially brought it up. Okay. So there's another topic, and that's the radiation, which we have touched on, but I'd like to int go into it in a little bit more depth, because we all know the evils of radiation. and I mean, we've talked about them there, nuclear radi radiation, and we're told to put sunscreen on to stop radiation from the sun, and we're in a protected environment. So we spoke then about the, the coat of silver paint on the camera and why the, the photographs should have been affected by radiation, but much bigger one, and you did kind of allude to it when you mentioned that none of the astronauts got sick in any way. It's common knowledge, and I mean provable common knowledge, as to the effects of radiation on the human body. These space spacesuits didn't have any kind of real protection from that either, did they? The only, the only protection that they had on the face was the, uh, was the visor on their helmets. They were supposed to be gold-plated. Mm. Sounds very dramatic. Which... Because on the moon, obviously, the sun is a great deal stronger, more powerful, because it's got no atmosphere to filter it, there's no clouds to filter it. Uh, the, the, the sunlight can be about 20% more powerful on the moon, so they had to protect the, their eyes. Well, that was a theory. They were protecting their eyes. But the eyes would have been affected by ultraviolet light, and that's why we put sunscreen on. Mm. It's, it's to protect us from the ultraviolet light, which is what causes the... Um, darkening of the pigment where we where we get tanned now whether that was correct or not or whether you whether they had to do it is completely new subject because if the astronauts did not go beyond low earth orbit i mentioned they're about 250 miles up yes if they were launched because bear in mind it, those rockets were launched there's no doubt about that the, the saturn V rocket was launched, the astronauts were on top of it. Two minutes after the thing takes off, it disappears from sight. It's about 50 miles up, about 200 miles down, down, um, down range. From that moment on until the parachutes uh, drift down and lower the capsule back into the Pacific, between those two events, 
the only information we have to tell us what's going on is that provided by NASA. Okay. There is no independent evidence of any of this. Now, somebody at this point is going to say, ah, oh, yes, there is. They've just photographed the lunar landers on the moon's surface. Yes, those photographs do exist. But what can you see? What, what, you see a picture of a apparent lunar surface with lots of craters, lots of bits and pieces, and a large arrow saying Apollo 11, because you can't see it unless you're told where it is. It looks like a rock. Now, this is the technology that, that photographed these landers on the moon. They was done from an unmanned satellite orbiting the lunar surface. Mm. And when you orbit the lunar surface, you're about 60 miles up. There are satellites which orbit Earth and can photograph individual people and cars and even read car number plates from 200 miles up. So don't give me this nonsense about being able to photograph something on the lunar surface if you can't show it in any more detail than a large arrow saying this is what we want you to look at. And to this day, they still don't seem to be able with satellite technology to give us any kind of definition whatsoever. Exactly. Exactly. No, no clue at all. And as for the moon rocks, oh my goodness me, because that's always produced as another example of, well, they got there because they got all the moon rocks. Well, I was going to say that to you. I mean, I've seen a moon rock. So yeah. where, where did they come from if they didn't come from the moon, Marcus? Well, how do we know they came from the moon? Because if, if you go to the Science Museum in London, which I've done, and you look at their uh, space, uh, ex space exhibits, one of them is a piece of moon rock. And I know it's a piece of moon rock because it says so. And the Science Museum wouldn't lie, would they? It's a lump of rock about sort of, you know, the size of a, of a half brick. It's in an enclosed case, so you can't touch it. And it says moon rock on it, so it must be moon rock. But they had a similar one in Holland, which was presented to the Dutch uh, people, the Dutch Prime Minister. It was presented in 1969 when the three Apollo 11 astronauts, Armstrong, Aldrin and Collins, did a goodwill tour around the world. And one of the places they went to was Holland, and he, they presented the Dutch Prime Minister with a piece of moon rock. Very generous of them. Mm. Until about 30 years, 40, 40 years, 30 years later, the Rijksmuseum, where this piece of moon rock was being held on uh, permanent loan, and um, the Rijksmuseum was being uh, renovated. So they had to dismantle the exhibit, and they decided to have a look at this piece of moon rock. Oh, dear. It was a piece of petrified wood. <laughs> Nobody told us about the petrified wood on the moon now, did they? This is a piece of rock exhibited in the Rijksmuseum for 30 years, presented by Apollo 11 astronauts, and it's a fake. It's a complete fake. The Rijksmuseum thought it was very funny and put it back on show again, saying, piece of petrified wood from the moon, question mark. Brilliant. But what, what on earth is going on? Now, yes, you can say that there's a lot of moon rock. Um, I've got a piece of rock here. I've got it in my hand right now, and it's, um, it's a piece of moon rock. How do you know it isn't? How do I know it is? If I say it's a piece of moon rock, does that make it a piece of moon rock? 
if you say it's not a piece of moon rock, it's a piece of um, something else, you could be right. How do I know? Just because you say it's moon rock doesn't mean to say it is. If you are going to shoot um, a film which uses the moon as your um, backdrop, are you aware that you can, there are companies in America that you can go to and order moon rock from? And regolith, which is the soil on the surface, you can order as much as, as much as you want, and they'll produce it for you. And it'll look exactly like we think it looks like. So was that how it was done in the first place? If you go to Flagstaff in Arizona, you can see a full-scale mock-up of the Sea of Tranquility, where Apollo 11 landed, we're told. It was produced, it was done, because it's a volcanic area mm. near Flagstaff, and the U.S. Geological Survey took some maps of, um, based on photographs taken by unmanned craft orbiting the moon, and they created some craters so that astronauts could fly over the Sea of Tranquility and it would appear as if they were flying over the moon. It's still there today. You can go and have a look at it. It's no secret. So if what I'm saying is even halfway correct, what you've got is a great deal of manipulation of perception of reality. If you think that the, the pictures you've seen on the moon were actually on the moon, it's incumbent upon you to demonstrate that that is correct. What I've tried to do here is to demonstrate that it is not correct that we have been manipulated, as we have in the past been manipulated, for, the end, for political ends, for anything. I mean, even going back to the uh, Lusitania, the sinking of the Lusitania off, off Southern Ireland, the German Navy had, took out an advertisement in the New York newspapers saying, we consider this ship to be carrying munitions for the Allies, and it will be considered a target. So everybody knew it was going to get attacked. And it was. And well over a thousand people died as a result. But they knew what was going to happen. Why weren't people advised more, more specifically? Was Pearl Harbor the great mystery that we're always told it is? Was it a total surprise? No, it wasn't. Yeah, and I mean, we now have with declassified files so yeah, much evidence to prove that Pearl Harbor was indeed a complete false flag. Yeah, it was a false flag. And the Gulf of Tonkin incident, which started the Vietnam War in 1964, it never happened the way it was reported. Now we have the, the evidence for what actually did happen. And what happened was nothing. No attack took place on the American fleet. So you've got all this ridiculous build up because people want to, to generate a war because just follow the money who benefits who decides that something is worth doing mm. and when you've got that situation if money is at stake which it can be in large quantities the pressure to act is quite severe and I'm saying that the, there was a lot of money flying around the, uh, the space program in the 1960s. A lot of people were benefiting from it. So whether they actually succeeded in landing a, ma a man on the moon was really quite irrelevant. 
But it'd be nice to demonstrate that they, they could do it, and that's what was happening. Whether they did it or not are two different things. That's a very good point, and I think perception is often to a political administration if they're trying to uh, work towards an agenda, which, of course, they always are. It can be good, it can be bad, but there is always an agenda. That's why, that's why they're put in supposed power. Perception is more important than the actual reality of something. That's why we have false flags, and that's why we have manipulated events, and that's why we have so much spin and PR that goes on. I mean, that's all acknowledged. I mean, PR, PR and spin wouldn't exist if it wasn't needed. So, I mean, th- that in itself shows me, just as a common person observing situations around me, and the media is a good example of it, that, that demonstrates to me that things couldn't always be what they seem, otherwise we wouldn't have spin and PR and propaganda. It wouldn't be needed. You're quite right. That's a, that's a very, good, very good point, that we wouldn't need it if it wasn't necessary. It's necessary because there are certain people who, who benefit from it. It's yeah. the old thing, follow the money. And there's a point I want to bring up as well, Marcus, briefly with reference to the photos and the number of photos, because it's quite often argued um, by those that debunk the moon landings or say that it's a conspiracy or it didn't happen, that the photos are just too good. We've already spoken about the camera and film exposures and the problems with radiation. But some of the photos, a lot of people say, well, these guys couldn't have got such good quality photos because of the viewfinder being removed and the fact that it was so difficult to take these photos. But 32,000 photos were taken. Could it not be the case that the photos were filtered through and they picked out the good ones, the, the so-called iconic photos that we're also familiar with now? Or were all, are all the photos documented and freely available with any kind of a numerical order, which I, I'm just a little bit unclear on that. Could it not just be the case that the good photos were selected and that would render the argument that, well... These guys couldn't have taken the photos because they couldn't see what was happening, a mute point. Yeah, good question, actually, because it's, it's one that's raised quite frequently. Um, up until about 10 years ago, it was very hard to uh, identify all the photographs. I, I mentioned 32,000 photographs taken on the lunar surface. Yeah. It was very hard to, to be able to see. I mean, that represents quite a lot of photographs. With the uh, advent of the internet and the expansion of the internet, every single photograph is now available to view online. Mm. And I've viewed most of them. Not all 32,000, because that would be tedious, boring, and, and really wouldn't get me very far. But if you look at the Apollo 11 photographs, um, basically you go onto the NASA gov website and follow all the various links and you, you'll come to it. It's, it's, it's under history nowadays, Apollo history. And every single photograph taken, not just on the moon, but in orbit and during the training, every single photograph is actually now online. On Apollo 11, the, the, the moonwalk-type photographs, the EVAs, extravehicular activity, or moonwalk to you and me, um, was taken on one magazine, it's called Magazine 40. It's quite well known. And it contains 121 images from the time they landed, apparently, to the time that they got back into the lunar lander in order to return to Earth, allegedly. Mm. 
121 photographs, and you can look at every single one in sequence, and if you follow the timeline from the transmissions, you can actually see when each one was taken. You can do the same on Apollo 12. There were about 500 taken on Apollo 12, up to about 5,000 taken on Apollo 17. You can look at every single image, and most of them are extremely boring and tedious and, and uninteresting because they just took pictures of the surface not even of each other. But there's one sequence of photographs on Apollo 11, which is uh, quite well known. It's a, pic a series of photographs showing Buzz Aldrin descending from the lunar lander, which they call the Eagle. And he's coming down the ladder, and he's coming down, and he gets to the bottom of the ladder. And there's a series of eight photographs. And they're all in sequence, and you can see them on, on the website. And it starts with him coming out through the hatch. He has to crawl on his stomach because it's quite a small hatch. He gets onto the top of the uh, porch thing and then comes down the ladder. Sequence of eight photographs. And it's taken over a period of three minutes. If you compare the uh, descriptions to the timeline. So to take eight photographs in three minutes is really not too much of a problem. Mm. Any halfway decent photographer familiar with his equipment could do it almost with his eyes shut. So he knew where to point the camera. But these photographs were taken under different focal points. So each photograph had to have the focus adjusted, the exposure adjusted, and the camera had to be aligned with the subject. And they're all aligned. He hasn't cut anybody's head off. It's a, it's a remarkable sequence of photographs, and I challenged any photographer to replicate them. And most photographers would say, oh, yeah, yeah, we could, we could probably do that. A bit of practice, we could probably do that. So without a viewfinder, oh, yeah, we could do it without a viewfinder. Um, could you do it, you know, having to reset the focus and the exposure? Oh, yeah, we could do that. We need quite a lot of practice at it, though. And we'd be far better off if we could take multiple photographs of each image to be sure of getting one at least right. I say, well, that's, a very, that's the way most professionals would work. Hmm. But they didn't do it on Apollo. They took one picture. Remember the one of Buzz Aldrin, Man on the Moon? It's quite a well-known image. Yeah, yeah, very famous picture. Uh, very famous image. There's only one of those. There's no bracketing, which in technical terms is you exp increase the exposure, decrease the exposure, so you hope you'll get one of them right. Because nobody's been to the moon before. They don't actually know what the exposure is supposed to be. Mm. They could estimate it, but they can't be sure. So you've got all, all these anomalies going on and the, the photograph of the footprint on the moon. Footprint on the moon. Yeah, wonderful. Sums it all up in one image. So good you don't even need a, a, a caption. How did they take that photograph? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? They took the, photo, they took the photograph by removing the camera from their bracket on a chest plate and pointing it at the ground. Yes, that's how they would have done it. Hmm. Why did they only take one picture? How did they know they got it in focus, composed properly? Now, don't forget, no viewfinder. How did they know that they, they'd done it properly? Well, if I'd no viewfinder and I wasn't, uh, I wasn't familiar with the conditions that existed, I know personally I would take 
a hell of a lot of pictures to try and get the good one. But we have NASA saying that, right, all the pictures are up now. Everyone can see all the pictures online. Yet, so many of these iconic pictures, they're not one in a sequence of maybe a hundred bad ones or even two or three bad ones, and they picked the good one. They've said they're all up, yet every single time, it seems now from what you're saying, the astronauts got the picture completely right. That's correct. That's exactly what, what happened. They got it right first time. So at that point, somebody will say, well, they, they spent a lot of time practicing. Yes, they may have spent time practicing, but they had a lot of other things to do at the same time. Mm. They fly this ridiculous craft that looks like a spider. They had to land the thing. They had to gather up bits of rock. They had to speak to the president. They had to uh, get out their equipment, you know, the, the famous... Um, mirrors that would reflect the laser back from the Earth so we'd all know how far away the moon was as if, as if that bothers us very much. Mm. And that's, that's one of the other things that is quoted all the time. Oh, well, you couldn't possibly uh, fire lasers at the moon unless somebody had left a mirror up there to reflect it back to Earth. Absolute rubbish. You don't even need a mirror in any way. Answer one question. If you're firing a laser at the moon, which people have done, what diameter will that laser beam be when it's traveled 240-odd thousand miles to the lunar surface? What diameter will it be when it reaches the lunar surface? And the answer is two miles. Yeah, I was going to say that. I'm no expert on lasers. <laughs> but it no. stands to reason that it's not going to be a little pinpoint of light. Correct. It's not a pinpoint of light. It's a whacking great two-mile diameter smudge of light so obviously what diameter is that going to be when it get, gets back to earth and how much light will get back to earth mm. and the answer is six photons six photons what, how what, do you, what, how do you measure that what six photons now for any of us who including myself who wouldn't be familiar with the science there I, I've got no idea what six photons look like it's probably not much Mm. And what sort of receiver would you need to pick up those six photons? So it's minuscule. It's tiny. It's yeah. so tiny that it's almost immeasurable or unmeasurable. It, it's, it's a ludicrous thing. And it's the one thing that all these supporters of Apollo um, point to as being the definitive answer to where we must have got to the moon because they've got the mirrors up there. Absolute rubbish. How many mirrors are there on the moon? Five. Three left by the Americans and two left by the Russians. The Russians could do it without putting men up there as well. <laughs> yeah. So when you fire these lasers at the moon, how do you know which one you're pointing at? It's a good, it's, que good question. Yeah, it could be. And also, you then go back in history a little bit, and American intelligence and British intelligence were using the moon to bounce radar signals off and radio signals off back in the 1950s. So the moon is a reflector. You can see it up there, it reflects light. That's what, that's what we call a full moon. It's reflecting sunlight. It can reflect radio beams, radio waves. It can reflect radar. You don't need a mirror there. You just need the surface of the moon. Yeah. So I don't think that man has landed on the moon because the evidence for it is so inconclusive and is not supported by unemotional investigation the photographs we've talked about that 
the astronauts, we've discussed them, the lasers, we look, just looked at that, the rocks, could they have come from the moon or anywhere else, and how do we know they came from the moon, and how many people have actually examined, only 5% of the lunar rock has actually ever been released for examination, that's about 40 pounds, out of the 800 pounds of rock or 340 kilos of rock they were allegedly brought back. What are they holding on for? Why are they holding it? What's the mystery? Hmm. They say it's for posterity. Why, is nobody going back to the moon any time soon? The answer is no, because they never got there in the first place. I want to ask you about the work of Jay Widener, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Many people may have seen his movie or his documentary Kubrick's Odyssey, and he puts forward the theory that Stanley Kubrick was the man who staged the moon landings. Have you any kind of comment on that or how familiar with that work are you? I'm certainly familiar with Jay Widener's um, uh, investigation, which he's done very thoroughly. Mm. Um, I don't... I'm not sure whether Kubrick had anything to do with it or not. The timing is a little bit different. Kubrick was working on his, um, on his film, uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey. Uh, in 19, it was released in 1968. There are a lot of parallels, and I think Jay Widener has spent uh, a considerable amount of time and effort in showing the, the almost hidden clues in um, the next film that uh, Kubrick shot, mm. um, the one with... Um, the Shining. Uh, the Shining, that's yeah. it, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say Jack Nicholson. Very good in it, and some of the some of the clues are certainly there. You know, the, the small boy who is apparently wearing a sweater with Apollo Eleven on it, and various other clues. The the point that Joe Widener makes, which is a very valid one, is that um, Kubrick was the first major filmmaker to use front screen projection mm. on, on his film Two Thousand and One, where you've got this the famous scene of the uh, of the apes jumping around and, and hitting each other with bones. And that was filmed at Pinewood Studios. It wasn't filmed in Africa. But the backdrop was projected onto the screen, hence front screen projection, so that the, the action could take place in front of it, but without casting shadow. It's, it's, quite, it's, it's to do with mirrors. There's, there's a, a half-silvered mirror that is used to split the light. Mm. bit technical, but it's, it was used quite frequently. Kubrick certainly used that front screen projection. The question is, did he have anything to do with the Apollo moon landings? And a strong case can be made to say that he, he might have had something to do with it. But I don't see any definitive evidence that he did. Okay. The circumstantial evidence, considerable amount of circumstantial evidence, not least of which is the uh, the, the release date of his final film, Eyes Wide Shut, yeah. where he uh, he insisted that the film be released for its premiere on July the 16th, 1999, the 30th anniversary of the uh, take uh, of the launch of the Apollo 11 rocket in 1969. Now, whether that is anything other than a coincidence, I don't know. The, the problem with, with that is it makes a very good story and because Kubrick is no longer around to answer the questions, people can basically project onto him anything that makes sense. Yeah, true. Uh, now, one point, I've examined a lot of the Apollo photographs 
um, specifically the ones taken on Apollo 17. And if you use um, a photo manipulation software, I, I use iPhoto because I use Mac computers, if you use um, that and you increase the contrast or reduce the, the, uh, the density, you can see what might appear to be evidence of something on the background in what's in effect the black sky, uh, which could well be a screen. Because the artifact is, uh, the front screens are basically little balls of um, crystal which reflect light. That's what, that's what any cinema screen will do. So you've got this artifact in the backgrounds which may well be a front, be a screen. I don't know. It's something which you maybe needs more investigation. It's very good that Jay Widener has uh, has done those investigations, and he's produced uh, was it Kubrick's Odyssey, a very interesting piece of filmmaking. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah. So I don't know. Um, I'm in two minds about it. I'm not persuaded by it because it is not conclusive, but it provides a great deal more uh, additional information. There is something else I wanted to to talk about, and that's a tale of two flags, okay? Because many of us have heard the argument that uh, when the astronauts are putting up the American flag, it waves, and there's no wind on the moon, as we know. Um, Now, I've also heard the counter-argument to that, that, the flag is held up, obviously, by horizontal bar, and when it's being unfurled by the astronauts and the pole is being fixed into position, that because the flagpole is light aluminium, it kind of vibrates after they let it go, maybe like a little bit like a flag on a golf course, and it kind of gives the impression of blowing in the wind then. So what's your position on that before I move on to the second of the flags? I, I would say that, that, that uh, yes, the only time that you see the flag moving when it's allegedly on the moon. The only time you see it moving is when somebody is touching it, mm. i.e. trying to drive it into the ground. And, and the way, as you described, they've got the pole, they're twisting it to try to drive it into the ground, which is quite, um, quite solid, so they have to twist quite a lot. There may well be some residual um, inertia in the flag when they let go of it. It doesn't mean to say that some, somebody's opened a studio door in, in uh, Area 51. I mean, that is ludicrous. Yeah. Because you'd think if they were going to fake it, they would have at least shut the door to stop the wind coming in. But that's not, that's not how they did it. Because the way that a lot of the film that we've seen was shot was done quite legitimately during the training and simulation exercises. Mm. So carried out quite publicly, quite openly, no big secret. There are about three or four different stage sets they used. Because if you're going to go to the moon, you want to get something as realistic as possible. So you're going to make it look like the lunar surface. You know, you're not going to make it look like 42nd Street, are you? You're going to make it look like the moon. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and they filmed it because they want to debrief. Like, you know, they would say, look, when you're coming down the ladder, Buzz, you know, put your feet there, not there, or you'll fall off. You don't want to collapse on the ground that's quite legitimate yeah and it was also that's the basis of the film Capricorn 1 as well which uh, is another story completely okay so 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 with regard to that flag then do you think it is kind of another anomaly or do you think it's something that conceivably could have been the case if they were on the moon 
Um, it's it's not an anomaly insofar as it demonstrates that they they're claiming to be on the moon, but they weren't. Um, I have yet to see anything to do with the flag that indicates it's doing anything other than you'd expect it to do under the, in the conditions that it's supposed to be operating, i.e. a vacuum. Okay. There is no wind on the moon, obviously, and there wouldn't be any wind allowed in a, during the training exercises because it wouldn't be a realistic depiction of what they were expecting. Yeah. Okay, so then the second flag... There is a picture that I've seen of, I, I think it might be Buzz Aldrin or Neil Armstrong, it would be Buzz who came down second uh, with his back to the camera as he comes down out of the module. And there appears to be the reflection of a flag behind whoever is taking the picture, which presumably is Neil Armstrong. Can you shed any light on that? I mean, am I mistaken in what I'm seeing? We'll try and get this picture up online so people can see it. But it looks to me... Like there is a reflection of another flag somewhere. And this is before the U.S. flag was supposedly planted in the ground. That's right. The, the U.S. flag was planted uh, fairly soon after both of those astronauts um, were on the lunar surface. Mm. Um, yes, it's in, it's in, the, first, it's in the, uh, the flag itself appears in the image where you see Buzz Aldrin's feet appearing out of the hatch on the Apollo 11 Eagle, uh, the lunar lander. But you have to um, enhance the photograph. You have to ex- go to extreme contrast because it's in, it's in the triangular window which the uh, lunar landers had. They had triangular windows. It's, it seems to be reflected in that triangular window. And because it is reflected in the left-hand window, i.e. the one that Neil Armstrong was looking out of when he landed the craft, and the flag was itself planted on the other side of the lunar lander, the real flag, this would appear to be the second flag. Nobody's offered an explanation as to what it is. It could well be a reflection of something actually inside the spacecraft itself. Right. Um, but that... That's where the second flag appears, and it's it's quite a mystery, actually, that one. And is it the case that somebody can take NASA's photograph online then and enhance the contrast themselves to actually see this, as opposed to just trusting what could be a manipulated Photoshop image that somebody else has posted online? Absolutely, absolutely. I, I've done it myself. And it, and and it appears then. So I mean, that's something that people, if they are in any way familiar with photo manipulation software, they can do for themselves. Yeah, and, and of course, this is one of the uh, the downsides now because photo manipulation software is so easily available and can do such remarkable things. Mm. Can you believe any photograph is real? Yeah, exactly. Without, you know, somebody hasn't manipulated it. It's very hard to actually um, to say with any degree of certainty because all the photographs, obviously, on the NASA website of the Apollo 11 mission are now digital images. Because they have to be to to go up onto onto a onto a website. They were originally transparency material. I mean, they they were slides, mm. but they've been scanned and they're now on the website. And they, anybody can go on and and have a look at the images and 
download them onto your own computer and uh, you can manipulate them away to your heart's content. Well, one of the interesting things, I think, when you look at any of the NASA images or look at some of the NASA images that are up online is how bad they appear to be with their own Photoshop skills because there are images, not just of, of lunar landings, but of all kinds of... Um, space-related photographs that have been taken that are quite clearly badly photoshopped yeah. to obliterate... Well, we don't know what they're obliterating because we can't see, but, I mean, it's, it's so blatantly obvious. And you would think in this day that they just haven't bothered to go back and cover it up to any degree of realism. I mean, some of the pictures that they have freely put up are beyond ridiculous in that how obvious it is that something is being covered up. I know, I know. You'd, you'd think they'd have more um, respect for the integrity of, of their audience, mm. but apparently not. You know, they, they put up these ridiculous images which anybody can look at and say, oh, goodness me, where did that come from? It, it's just, it, it doesn't make logical sense. But when, when NASA were asked on camera by Sky Television in the UK to answer certain questions about the photographs and about some of these points we've been talking about recently. Um, their response through their press office was, we don't have time for this nitpicky claptrap. Uh, that, that was their actual response. It's on film. Um, so NASA don't either are ignoring it or they're not prepared to investigate it. Because, obviously, if you work for NASA, you're a space enthusiast, you're, you've probably followed them all your life, you support what they do, as, as many people do, mm. and you're not really prepared to have a look and say, perhaps they made a mistake, perhaps there were errors, perhaps we should look more closely. Because at the end of the day, if NASA are holding out the fact that they landed 12 people on the lunar surface 45 years ago and they now can't do it again, aren't more questions going to be asked? Is the integrity of NASA going to be challenged until they actually explain what is going on? I think the answer is yes. And we could continue to ask questions probably for the next nine or ten hours with relation to, to the nitpicking claptrap, as NASA liked to refer to it. But unfortunately, we don't have time to do that. But you also spoke about um, lack of respect for the integrity of an audience. I'd like to talk just for a little second and get the plug in for Nexus magazine, because it's a publication that certainly does have a lot of respect for the integrity of its readers and audience. Uh, so tell us about Nexus, the magazine that you are such a major part of and have been, how successful it's been and how people can get their hands on it, because I've only relatively recently been introduced to Nexus magazine and it's Absolutely brilliant. I mean, it covers such a wide range of topics. Not, it's not just about the moon. It's about everything and anything. So tell us a little bit about that for anyone who may never have heard of it, of it Marcus. Well, that's a, a very generous introduction, John. Thank you very much for that. Uh, yeah, Nexus magazine, I've been involved with it for just over 20 years. It comes from Australia. It's edited and produced by uh, Duncan Rhodes in Australia, and I publish the UK-Europe edition, which we sell throughout, obviously, UK and Europe. And Ireland, obviously. Yep. It's, qu it's quite easily available throughout Ireland through Easton's news agents and on subscription. And we've been doing it now 20-odd years. So when you ask the, the very first question you asked about, you know, how did I get from there to here, I should really have answered about Nexus because that is the, the key to it. Nexus magazine is something I came across in, in the UK 20, 23, 24 years ago, 
but I couldn't get it in the UK. And um, at that time, I was working for Toyota, the uh, car importers, who decided that they were going to make me redundant, which is fine. And then they gave me a big check and told me to get lost. So I go, well, what can I do now? Mm. Well, I could sell cars or parts of cars, which is what I was doing. How difficult is it to sell magazines? Not very difficult, as it turned out. And that's why I started selling Nexus, because it covers these sort of subjects. It covers health issues, um, alternative health, I suppose you call it. It covers future science. It looks at uh, what we might call free energy, which is quite an interesting subject in its own right. We also look at hidden history. Um, the origin of uh, much of our history is obscured or is uh, uh, recreated. We've discussed how things are manipulated in, in the political life. It's also things are manipulated in historical terms as well. We look at that. We look at uh, the unexplained. We even examined UFOs and crop circles. So there's something for everybody there. And it's uh, one of the subjects in this current issue your September issue, on sale at any good news agent near you, um, carries the article about why can't we build the moon base now? We could build it 40 years ago, so we're told, but we can't build it now. And uh, the article is, NASA unable to recreate te Apollo technologies, will we ever return to the moon? Which is quite a generous heading. Mm. And there's also a parallel report on it about the cosmonauts report strange phenomena. So there's a lot of things that people are not really getting full details about, unless you read Nexus. So I'd recommend Nexus. Nexusmagazine.com is the website. And as an additional website, I can recommend one that is called Aulis. That's A-U-L-I-S.com which deals with all this subject. And that, the article that appeared in Nexus is actually now on that website, ourlist.com. Certainly recommend that. And you can see all the photographs that have been manipulated. There's a very extensive section there on photo analysis of the lunar photographs. Highly recommended, as um, run by uh, people who've been examining this subject for 25 years. As I have. Well, I'd so, highly recommend it myself. And I must say, it's refreshing in the digital age to be able to pick up a physical magazine, as we used to be able <laughs> to do, so, and read something at your leisure and not be reliant on electrical technology and computers and all that. They're great, don't get me wrong. I fully embrace technology, but I, I like to be able to pick up a book or a magazine. And I must say, I've, 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 I've only got two issues of Nexus magazine, which you kindly sent my way, and from here on in, I'm a, a devoted subscriber. I think it's a great magazine, and I highly recommend that anybody who's interested in things that go on in the world that we're not necessarily told about, as a lot of people who listen to this show are, well, that they get their hands on it, or at least check it out, because there's a lot there, as you say, for everybody. Indeed. Thank you very much for that, John. I appreciate that. No, and Marcus, it's been a great pleasure, and I hope you will come back and chat to me again, because... There are so many different topics that we could talk about. It's not just the moon landings, but I did. Well, we haven't discussed the moon landings in any depth on alchemy before, and I wanted to get in depth and into the nitty gritty there with you on it. So thank you for chatting to us. And I hope you will come back and discuss some of the other fascinating topics that you are so familiar and au fait with in the future. I'd be delighted to. And uh, 
if you get the response that I expect you will about the moon landings, I think we should then cover some of the responses to people's questions because that is the key to it, especially with the younger generation who maybe not as familiar with it as some of us old-timers are, but should be familiar with it because it is uh, relevant to, the, to, to everybody's future. Well, I think that's a great idea. So let, let's put it out there to the listeners now. We've never done a questions and answers based on a show on alchemy before. So let's do it with the moon landing. So if anybody wants to, having listened now to this interview with Marcus, if anybody wants to do a little bit of their own research, or even not, if there are just some questions that come to mind that we haven't covered on this show, well, get them in to me. The, the email address is info at alchemyradio.net. You'll find us on Facebook and Twitter as well. Get those questions in and we'll do a follow-up show then in the coming months with Marcus and we'll address those queries and questions. That's good. I look forward to that. Fantastic stuff. Well, it's been a huge pleasure. I have the power. You have the power. We have the power. Marcus Allen, thank you for joining me so much on Alchemy today. I've enjoyed it immensely and I look forward to our next discussion. Thank you, John. It's my pleasure and privilege to be here. Alchemy Radio. Alchemy Radio.
Here's a little ghost for the offering. Yeah, 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 yeah. Here's a truck stop instead of St. Peter's. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mr. Andy Coffin's gone wrestling. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, Andy, did you hear about this one? enjoyed this week's episode of Alchemy Radio remember we rely on donations to keep the show in its current free and ad free format there's no fixed cost on the donations so even the smallest amount goes a long long way towards keeping us afloat the donate and subscribe buttons are on the website and thank you very much to everybody who has helped and supported recently until the next time I have the power you have the power we have the power Alchemy Radio Alchemy Radio Analyze Are you tuned in? Are you tuned in? Are you tuned in? Are you tuned in? Are you tuned in?